this month. We've just finished up three months in Isaiah. We're looking at Mark 8, verses 27 to Mark 9, verse 1. It's on page 714, if you're grabbing the Bible from the seat back in front of you. Mark 8, starting in verse 27. And uh, if we could have the first, or the slide up, Rachel, to get us in the mood. You put your right foot in, you put your right foot out. You put your right foot in, and you shake it all about. But come on, doing the hokey pokey is not what it is all about. All right, you can. But, but if not, if doing the hokey pokey is not what it's all about, then what is it all about? What is it all about? That's the question I'd like for us to explore this morning as we look at this passage. And that's a huge question. So to warm us up, let's start with an easier question. What is church all about? Is it about gathering on Sunday mornings to sing songs, pray prayers, and listen to God's word? Is it about being motivated and strengthened as we come together so that we can go out and serve God the other six days of the week? What is church all about? Well, I want to read a story that I read this past week, which really jolted me into thinking more about what church is all about. It's written by Hugh Halter, a guy who started a new church in Denver several years ago. And he writes, after about 12 months in Denver, we had been having a group of young Starbucks employees over on Saturdays to talk about life and God. Many of their conversion stories were well on the way, but we were caught off guard by a question a young woman asked one night. As 20 of us were jammed into my living room, she held up her hand and she asked, is this my church? I looked at my wife Cheryl across the room and clearly saw her eyes communicate, you'd better not say yes. (laughs) Then I looked at Matt, my ministry partner, and saw the same look. So thinking quickly, I said, "Um, no, this is not your church. This is your hmm, faith community. Yeah, your faith community. A beautiful non-committal response. Well, she said, I've come to faith, so aren't I supposed to have a church? Again, thinking on my feet, I replied, well, a church would be different. A church would be if we all decided to go on mission together. So far, we have been on mission for you. We open up our home, we buy food, we throw cool parties, We give our time to mentor you. If all of you decide to be a church, you'll have to do that for everyone else. You'll have to die to your own lives like we have. Does his answer surprise you? It surprised me, or or to put it more accurately, it actually surprised me that it surprised me. You see, I believe in the answer that he gave. I've read the gospel stories about Jesus. I believe that the community of Jesus' followers, the church, is supposed to be about giving up our lives to reach out together to serve and and to reach others with the love of Jesus. But what surprised me was that's not how I expected him to answer. It's not how something in me thought he should answer. Something in me thought he should say, no, a church would be if if you came to a church building on Sunday mornings to sing songs, to pray prayers, to to hear a sermon, to take communion maybe, to, to give money, to get involved in ministries. 
but why this discrepancy within myself about what church is all about? What is it all about? Well, with these questions in mind, let's look at today's passage. To help us understand today's passage, let me give you a quick overview of where this story falls within the bigger story of Jesus as told by the Gospel of Mark. I had us read the story about Jesus healing the the blind man in Bethsaida as part of today's reading because that's really the beginning of this second major section in Mark's Gospel, which we'll be looking at this month. This section begins here in 8.22. And it ends at the end of chapter 10. And it begins and it ends with a story about Jesus miraculously opening the eyes of a blind man. If you look at the end of chapter 10, that's how this section ends. This section is often called the way section of Mark because the Greek word for way, hodos, comes up seven times in this section. Now, if you want to go through and count all seven, you'll have to be on the lookout for words like road or journey as well as way because English translations often use several words to translate this Greek word, hodos. And Mark uses this word deliberately, hodos, way, to signal to us that he's alluding to the book of Isaiah, the book we've been looking at for the past few months. In Isaiah, in particular, I want to draw our attention to two passages which talk about the way, or more specifically, what Bible scholars have called the way of the new exodus. The old exodus, of course, had been centuries before during the days of Moses when God had led his people out of Egypt. But Isaiah was foretelling a new exodus, as we saw two weeks ago. And this new one was supposed to be initiated by Cyrus, the Persian emperor, right? If you've been here, you've We've been talking about that. When Cyrus freed God's people from Babylon and allowed them to go back to Jerusalem, that was the new exodus. But as we saw over the past few weeks, this new exodus really got postponed because God's people were unfaithful. And so it got postponed until a second savior, known as the servant of the Lord, could come and save his people not only from captivity but from their sins. So that's Isaiah's new exodus, and Isaiah uses the word way to talk about it. Listen to these two scriptures then about this new exodus from Isaiah. First, Isaiah 35, 8. And a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. The unclean will not journey on it. It will be for those who walk in that way. And then Isaiah 42, 16. I will lead the blind by ways they have not known. Along unfamiliar paths, I will guide them. Isn't what Mark does here in our passage this morning just amazing? He tells two stories about Jesus healing a blind man. And then in between, seven times he refers to the way that Jesus is leading his followers on. Also strikingly, three times along this way, Jesus predicts his death in Jerusalem. And each time, Jesus' disciples respond to these predictions with blindness, with incomprehension. And then each time, Jesus teaches them more about his death and about what it means for the way that his followers should live their lives. 
I will lead the blind by ways they have not known. Along unfamiliar paths, I will guide them. This is the highway which will be called the way of holiness. The unclean will not journey on it. If we had more time, we could go back to the previous section of Mark, Mark 6 to 8, and see that in that section, Mark is arguing with his or I'm sorry, Jesus is arguing with the Pharisees about clean and unclean and about what true holiness is. And now here we see that he's going to teach us what true holiness is on the way to Jerusalem, the way of the new exodus. What Mark is trying to say to us, in other words, in the way that he structures these chapters and the literary features he uses, is that we dare not skip over Jesus' difficult teaching in this chapter about discipleship, about losing our lives and dying to ourselves, about taking up our crosses and following Jesus, because that is, in fact, what it is all about. All right, let's dig into today's passage. Mark begins with a story about Jesus healing a blind man. And for this guy to see clearly, it takes two touches. The first time Jesus touches him, the Martin kids did this really well. The, the guy um, can see something, but his vision is blurry. He sees people, but they look like trees walking around. So Jesus touches him a second time, and then he can see clearly. Now, did you ever think that this was a strange story for Mark to tell about Jesus? Mark's the only one who tells it. And, I mean, Jesus healed hundreds of people. He probably healed hundreds of blind people. Why tell the one where Jesus didn't get it right the first time? <laughs> right? Well, as many Bible scholars have pointed out, there's a good reason Mark tells this story. Because this story is not only a literal miracle, it's also an enacted parable. It's, it explains what's going on in the way section of Mark. As we read through Mark 8 to 10, we see that Jesus' disciples have figured out who Jesus is, but they're still half blind. They, they need a second touch from Jesus to see clearly God's way of holiness. In today's passage, the story focuses on Peter, who in a way represents all the disciples. And in our story today, Peter gets the first touch. He's able to see what others fail to see about Jesus. Verse 28. Some people say Jesus is John the Baptist or Elijah or one of the prophets. But Peter sees more clearly. His blindness is removed. He can see who Jesus really is. Verse 29. Peter confesses, you are the Christ. The Messiah. Peter has received the first touch. He can see that Jesus is in fact that great long-awaited king, the, the descendant of David who would retake the throne of Israel, would free God's people from their enemies and, and reestablish them as God's glorious people. The other gospels tell us Peter didn't receive this on his own. It was, it was God, the Father in heaven, who revealed this to Peter. He has received a touch. His blind eyes are opened where other people don't know clearly who Jesus is. Peter recognizes he's the Messiah. That's a gift of grace. But it quickly becomes apparent that Peter needs a second touch. He 
accurately recognizes that Jesus is the Messiah, but his view of who the Messiah is is blurry and distorted. When Jesus goes on in verse 31 to tell the disciples that the way he will exercise his messiahship, his kingship in in Jerusalem, the royal city, is by being rejected and suffering and being killed, Peter rebukes Jesus. And so Jesus has to rebuke Peter. Verse 31, Jesus says, Get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Peter's still half blind. Peter needs a second touch. So do the rest of Jesus' disciples. And I suspect so do many of us regularly. Again, we'll need God's grace to give us this touch. Verses 31 to 38 are all about the second touch that Jesus has come to give. And Jesus' teaching here is so countercultural, so unexpected that it comes as a shock. Have you ever been on the receiving end of a completely unexpected surprise party? I had one of those totally disorienting shocks at the rehearsal dinner before Anne's and my wedding. I had this picture about how the evening was going to go and and plans for when I'd go home and what I'd do later in the evening. And I was enjoying the dinner. All my best friends were there and my close family, and I was fully present. I was fully enjoying the moment. And then all of a sudden, my former college roommate, Eric, what was he doing here, burst into the restaurant, firing a water pistol with a set of handcuffs. He used to be a police officer, and he's saying, where's Wiedenheft? And my mind starts racing and swimming. I'm trying to make sense of what's going on as all my other male friends stand up and get their coats. And and Eric ties my arms behind my back and he puts a sheet over my head and I begin to realize that my evening is about to turn out very differently than I expected. (laughs) Jesus' words in verse 31 are like that experience and much, much more. They come as a sharp, unexpected shock upside the head. They, they jolt us. They dizzy us. They disorient us. The Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the leaders of God's people, and be killed. Jesus spoke plainly about these things, Mark tells us. And it must have been pretty plain because Peter takes Jesus aside and rebukes him. And this is just about what any of us would have done back at that time or would have wanted to if we had the guts that Peter has. Because Jesus has just confirmed that he was the Messiah, the Christ. And Messiahs do not, do not suffer. This was certain. Pigs do not fly. Hell does not freeze over. Messiahs do not suffer. Now, I know last week we looked at Isaiah 53, and we talked about God's suffering servant. But you have to realize that no one before the time of Jesus conceived that the suffering servant could be the Messiah. Actually, there was one rabbi in the Targums who interpreted it that way, but but he also interpreted all the sufferings of the suffering servant away because everyone knew the Messiah could not suffer. So they figured the suffering servant... You know, the Jews figured he must be a personification of Israel in exile, or he must be Isaiah himself, or or something like that. But not the Messiah. 
I mean, for the Jews, a suffering Messiah was as possible as an impoverished billionaire or an ugly beauty queen or a, an uneducated scholar. It was a contradiction in terms. And a crucified Messiah? Absolutely out of the question. You have to remember that at this time, the Jews were, were being harshly oppressed by the Roman Empire. And the Romans had already crucified several failed false Jewish messiahs. That's what you got for standing up to Rome. And so to get crucified was absolute proof that you were not, in fact, the real messiah. The true messiah would be the one who would triumph and would finally conquer and overcome. God would make sure of this. I mean, how could the Messiah suffer and be rejected and be put to death when suffering and rejection and death were the very things the Messiah was supposed to save his people from? Yet Jesus, a Jew, turns around and rebukes Peter and calls him Satan. And all Peter had done was reminded Jesus of the obvious truth that everyone knew to be true. What a jolt! Either Jesus is completely off his rocker or the whole rest of the world is completely blind and has everything backwards and upside down. I mean, Jesus calls what was believed in every synagogue and by every godly man and woman Satan's view of things. Boy, if we accept that Jesus knew what he was talking about, then we have to come to grips with the fact that God's ways are not our ways, that we are blind, that we don't understand. Though we've read our Bibles our whole lives, how little grasp we can have of the ways of God. There are unexpected ministry, or mysteries in the mind and in the plans of God which it takes a second divine touch to be able to see and to accept. And Jesus comes to bring that touch. Well, Jesus says that Peter does not have in mind the concerns of God. Do you? Do I have in mind the concerns of God? Let's remind ourselves of what the concerns of God are. Or to go back to the hokey pokey, let's ask ourselves again, what is it all about? Verse 31, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected and he must be killed. Verse 34, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. The power and the potency and the victory of God's kingdom is found in smallness and in weakness and in surrender. Jesus, a single man, stood against all the might of the Roman Empire, an empire which to the Jews had stood for cruelty and, and injustice and inhumanity and destruction and blasphemy and sacrilege and wickedness and evil. They were the vile enemy. They must be defeated if God's concerns and God's ways had any chance of succeeding on earth. But Jesus chose to give himself up and to submit himself to the worst that the enemy could dish out. Such were the concerns of God.
Jesus won by losing. He was strong through weakness. He overcame by being defeated. He gained life by giving it up. And then he says, if you want to follow me, deny yourselves and take up your crosses and follow my example. That's what it's all about. That's how God wins. That's how God gets things done. That's how God's kingdom comes. Chuck Colson tells the story of Telemachus, a monk who lived somewhere in the eastern part of the Roman Empire in the fourth century. Telemachus, for some reason, had gone to Rome, and there he witnessed the Roman gladiatorial games which took place in the great Roman Colosseum. And he had never seen anything like them. They, they, their wanton brutality, the, the bloodthirsty crowds, the, the suffering and indignity of human beings being slain by one another and by animals for a sport, for spectacle. And this spectacle so grated on Telemachus' sensitive soul and, and so struck him as being out of line with the values of Christ that Telemachus actually stepped down into the arena where the games were going on. And he got between the gladiators trying to get them to stop. And the crowds must have been shocked, perhaps amused. But then they grew indignant, so indignant that history tells us they stoned Telemachus to death. And the games went on that day. But history also tells us that the emperor at that time, Emperor Honorius, later heard this story and was evidently deeply moved, so moved that he proclaimed an end to the gladiatorial games and the Roman Colosseum never saw them take place again in the fourth century. Those are the concerns of God. Those are God's ways. Victory through defeat, gaining through losing, success through surrender, strength through weakness. That's the way of holiness which God's Messiah King is trying to lead his blind disciples on. And that is what a church is to be. Now, Telemachus is a dramatic example. And Jesus clearly calls every one of us who would follow him to be prepared to give our life in such a dramatic way. But not all of us have that opportunity. And so in the meantime, there are plenty of other opportunities around us every day to serve, to give, to, selfless, to selflessly love in smaller ways. Preacher Fred Craddock compares it to withdrawing your life savings from the bank and plunking it down on the table in $1,000 bills. Here's my life, Lord. I'm giving it all to you. But then he says God often sends us back to the bank to change our bills in for quarters. And God says, go out every day and put down 25 cents here, a dollar there. For me, that means coming home from work some days, exhausted, maybe feeling sorry for myself, and just wanting to veg on the couch and be served. I see some of the guys nodding. Maybe some of the ladies are too. But it means walking through the front door, feeling that way, and taking those feelings off with my coat and rolling up my sleeves and doing whatever I can to serve my wife. 
It means giving up the hobbies I'd like to pursue, the, the free time I'd like to have to do something with my kids, to listen to their stories, to be present, to solve their squabbles. Do I do this right all the time? No. <laughs> Several years ago, Ann and I were buying our house, and, and the day of the closing, the papers were all drawn up without my middle name. And the lawyer told me that it was important that I signed my name that way, Richard Wiedenhoff, no middle initial. But that's not how I signed my name. For years, I've been signing it Richard D. Wiedenhaft with my middle initial. And, and so here I am trying to quickly sign all these papers, but to leave out the D each time. And, and I kept wanting to put that D in there. And, and a few times I did, and they had to go reprint the papers. That's how it is with laying down my life. It doesn't come naturally. I've, I've got to keep sharp. I've got to keep my head in the game or I slip back into my old selfish ways again. But Jesus, King Jesus, reminds me, reminds us that those old selfish ways are not the direction we're moving. And we dare not get stuck back there. We're on the way of the new exodus. If we're following Jesus, we're moving step by step, bit by bit, toward servanthood, toward selfless love, toward generosity, toward giving our time, our attention, our talents, our treasure away to bless others. Not because we're, we're earning anything by doing that, but because we trust Jesus and that's where he's leading us. That's the way of salvation. And so we're following him in faith couple other stories of, of what these 25 cent deposits might look like. This one from Kathy Gebhardt, a mother from Canton, South Dakota. South Dakota. She recounts, my three-year-old son helped me with a community a toy drive for the holidays. First, he cleaned out his toy box. Then he helped fix defective items and collected donations for kids that don't have anything to play with. When Christmas Day came, Timmy, my son, received his much-wanted Sesame Street Playhouse. After playing with it all day, I found him trying to rewrap it. When I asked him about what he was doing, he said, I want to give this to one of those kids who doesn't have anything to play with because if I didn't have any toys, this is what I would want. Here's one more example. Jeffrey Collins tells it in his Christian Reader article entitled, It Happened on a Friday. Jeffrey writes, I had been, or it had been a trying week at our love and action office. At five o'clock on a Friday, I was looking forward to having a quiet dinner with friends. Then the phone rang. Jeff, it's Jimmy, I heard a quavering voice say. Jimmy, who suffered from several AIDS-related illnesses, was one of our regular clients. I'm really sick, Jeff. I've got a fever. Please help me. I was angry, says Jeff. After a 60-hour work week, I did not want to hear about Jimmy. But I promised to be right over. Still during the drive, I complained to God about the inconvenience. The moment I walked through the door, I could smell the vomit. Jimmy was on the sofa, shivering and in distress. I wiped his forehead and got a bucket of soapy water to clean up the mess. And I managed to maintain a facade of concern, even though I was raging inside. Jimmy's friend, Rush, who also has AIDS, came down the stairs. The odor made Rush sick, too. As I cleaned up 
the carpet around Russ's chair, I was ready to explode inside. Then Russ startled me. I understand, I understand, he said. What, Rush? Jimmy asked weakly. I understand who Jesus is, Rush said through his tears. He's like Jeff. Weeping, I, I hugged Rush, Rush and prayed with him. And that night, Rush welcomed Jesus into his life, a God who had used me to show his love in spite of myself. This reminds me of a quote from Christianity Today magazine some years back. It may take a crucified church to bring a crucified Christ before the eyes of the world. That's what it's all about. That's what church is all about. That's what being human, that's what life is all about. Let me close with a quote from Martin Luther King Jr., who I think learned well from Jesus on this point. He said, life's most persistent and urgent question is, what are you doing for others? What are you doing for others? Do you want to find your life? Then lose your life for others in Jesus' name. That's how you'll find it. Jesus, the king, said so. And if we can't trust him about that, how can we trust him about anything else? Let's pray. Jesus, we admit that we live in a world that's blind and we have become blind ourselves. And in your grace, you come and you seek us and you offer unconditionally to bring us to yourself to bring us to your Father, to embrace us. And then you touch us and you open our eyes and you show us what it's all about and how to live our lives. And Jesus, we have to take this one on faith because it goes contrary to human nature, our fallen, twisted nature. And I ask that you would give CBC, that you would give us the second touch in our eyes and our hearts to see that this is your way. This is your way of salvation. This is the way you're redeeming all things and making them new. Teach us your way in Jesus' name. Amen.